Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, uh, Dr. Dean Gerson, being brought to you by Scott from the comfort of my home, practicing good social distancing and we really have a guest that everybody uh, wants to speak to. He probably doesn't want to speak to everyone. And we really thank you, Professor Barry Shub, for coming and joining us today. I know your phone probably hasn't uh, stopped in those past few weeks. Yeah, thanks very much, uh, Dean. Great, great to be on your show. Great to have a little bit of a break from my phone. So it's a great pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, Professor, I mean, the world is in panic right now um, we, I think we're all in panic and I think half of it is uh, because of the unknown, we don't know what's going to happen, we can't see the end and um, we've never seen something like this before why is this, why is this pandemic different to uh, any other outbreak um, of disease that we've had before Yeah, thanks Dean, I think what really kind of Makes it different, uh, you know, one, one hesitates to use the word unique because you can always find some, some other exception, but in many ways it is kind of generically unique. Uh, it's the first time that we've experienced a virus in our lifetime, certainly, uh, and certainly for many, many, many years, I mean, hundreds of years, in fact. We've had a virus coming originally from the animal kingdom, and then crossing that species barrier from animals to humans, and then infecting humans, but not only infecting humans in a limited sense, but then spreading throughout, in fact, spreading throughout globally, infecting almost all countries around the world. So we do have kind of uh, pandemics, for example, like influenza every year, if we define a pandemic as a disease which spreads through the world. But this is different because influenza has been with us for, uh, you know, basically since mankind started. Um, and this is, this is unique, you know, coming more recently in our lifetime, a new virus which we've never seen before. And therefore the population, the global population, the world's population is totally susceptible to this virus. So it has like a field that open field for it, it's an open house for that virus to infect everybody that comes into contact with it. And of course, not everybody's going to get the disease. Not everybody's going to get ill or sick. But it will affect a certain high percentage of individuals because there's no immunity, because it's a totally new virus to us. Um, and in that way, it is, I, I guess you can call it unique, uh, and maybe a quote, a quote unique, unquote. Um, but uh, in, in many respects, it is unique in that sense. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's something we're in a learning curve, saying that we haven't, that we don't have complete knowledge at all. We're actually learning on the job, as it were. Um, from China, the uh, epidemic in China, Italy, Europe, and the United States, and trying to learn those lessons. We're still in the very early stages, um, but hopefully uh, as much as we can kind of institute severe control measures, and they are obviously going to get more severe, uh, we can so-called flatten the curve. In other words, so we don't have a sharp epidemic, but it becomes attenuated so the healthcare system can cope with it. So that, I guess, is the whole thing in a nutshell. <laughs> okay, so uh, there's a lot of points that you've touched on over there. So let's start. Um, yeah. You said we, yeah. you said we can, le- you said we can learn from other countries. Obviously, right. we know it started in we start it started in China. 
Has China yes. won uh, the battle, or are they are they still busy, or is there any end in sight for China? Yeah, China, in fact, has had an extraordinary uh, experience in controlling this epidemic. Uh, I think they they probably have won in the sense that uh, there are very few cases now, so very few new cases, and those very few, I mean, it's in the, in the single digits, three or four, so now only imported cases. So there's no more transmission within China, only a few imported cases now and again. You're talking about a population of about one and a half billion people. So China instituted extra, uh, unheard of, unprecedented control measures. They, uh, the, the, uh, where the epidemic started in the city of Wuhan, it's actually uh, in a province called Hubei, and that's about 55-0 million people. That entire province was put under it's lockdown. Of it's like the size yep. of our country, the entire province. It's the size of our country, and that entire province put under complete lockdown, policed by the police and the soldiers to prevent people moving around. And it was remarkably successful because they compressed that epidemic into what, about six weeks. Uh, and very successfully, in fact, have, uh, have controlled it. I don't know if any other country can do what they did. Would, would we, I mean, maybe it's because they had a police lockdown and it was one province. Are they able to go back outside now? At what stage do you decide that people can continue with normal life? I think that they're starting to lift. I'm not exactly sure. I think that, they, that they're starting to lift the lockdown. Um, hopefully that there won't be any more local transmission and those imported cases won't result in, um, in a, a reinstitution of the epidemic. But uh, I'm not exactly sure what degree of uh, lifting of the lockdown they have. I know that they have started to lift the lockdown. Okay, we're going to take a, a short ad break and we'll be back now with Professor Barry Schiff. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We have the privilege of interviewing Professor Barry Schiff about uh, coronavirus at this very scary time. We're just talking about seeing an end in sight for the virus. I know it's still very early days for us in South Africa. China, you said, uh, has managed to curtail or at least stop the spread for um, about six weeks. Um, we're still in the beginning. So what, what can we expect uh, now? What are our daily lives going to be like? Yeah, Dean, one, one doesn't want to be too pessimistic so early on a Monday morning on your show. But, you know, looking at it totally realistically, um, we are in the early stages uh, looking forward, unfortunately, we don't really have that much good news on, on many respects. The first is that we're actually heading into the winter season, and we know that uh, respiratory spread viruses, respiratory transmitted viruses, do thrive in the winter. Uh, people are closer together. They generate a physiological excretion more. They're more likely to generate droplets. They're more likely to transmit viruses. So going into winter is the one thing that, that's not great news. Uh, but also our demographics are against us because um, at the moment uh, most of our cases have been imported cases from obviously the upper socioeconomic group of our population who brought it into the country um, and there's been much less. And I think it's about three quarters of the cases have been imported. A quarter have been locally transmitted. Even those that are locally transmitted have been contacts of those imported cases. Um, so we haven't really established in, as such uh, what we call the chains of transmission in the local population. That still has to come. 
Once that has come, of course, from the upper socioeconomic group, it'll go into the general population. And we know that that uh, the large sections of the population of this country don't have the privilege where it's easy to quarantine or self-quarantine. Uh, there's much more crowded. In some places, in fact, there isn't even adequate water to wash hands. We know that many of our domestic staff, many factory workers, many laborers come in taxis where there's a tremendous amount of crowding. So the demographics is also going to count against us. So we've got two problems. You've got the seasonal problem, and I think a more important, a more important problem uh, is the demographic problem. Um, so we need to kind of just be aware of that and cognizant of that, that uh, we do have those things counting against us. What is counting for us, and I think we must compliment the government, the government has stepped in at this early stage uh, with bold plans, and I believe that the plans are going to get even bolder uh, with the President's announcement. And hopefully those bold plans, those, dr- I hate to say to use the word draconian, but draconian measures will at least attenuate the outbreak. We will have the outbreak, but at least what we want to avoid is an explosive outbreak like, like is occurring currently in Italy, where they uh, unfortunately did not anticipate, would not adequately prepare for the extensive uh, transmission of the virus. Hopefully our measures that the, well, that the government's instituting will make it possible to kind of spread out the epidemic so at least the healthcare system can uh, address it, can cope with it satisfactorily. Okay. Um, let's talk about uh, social distancing. So it's a, uh, is it a, use, a euphemism for lockdown? Um, or is it uh, just a nice way of saying we need to stay apart because, so we don't uh, spread the disease or become carriers or infect other people? Yeah. I think social distancing has been used in two ways. One is in 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 an individual way, and the other is in a community way. So if you look at social distancing from an individual way, it means that really to just keep a a distance from somebody who may be uh, expelling the virus uh, in, you know, as they're talking, as they're coughing, as they're sneezing, we generate little, little small uh, droplets of respiratory excretion uh, which goes into the air and these droplets can remain in the air for a short period of time then they fall down on surfaces. But these droplets don't get generated more than about, well, some say a meter, some say six feet, some say two meters. I like saying six feet because people can visualize an average man being just down to six feet in height. So if you keep beyond that, then you should be reasonably safe from somebody that's expelling these droplets, which may be laden with viruses. That's on an individual basis. Social distancing is also used as a term generally in the population to try and um, get this distance from people who are potentially sources of infection uh, by means of, uh, in other words, to stop people congregating um, in tight places, uh, crowding, uh, in various situations, like uh, in shopping centers, in, in shops, for example, or in our situation in synagogues and shuls, um, any any kind of situation where people are going to be tightly packed to each other uh, is, is going to facilitate virus transmission. So we use social distancing in both senses, individually to try and keep away from people that may be a source of infection, at least six feet away, and also to try and institute measures in a social way to try and prevent people crowding together. 
Okay, so what, what about uh, going about daily lives? We should obviously we know that kids are home from school, and we know that we having um, cancelled school services and any public gatherings. What are we doing about going about shopping? I mean, we all need to get food and we need to get get supplies. How can that be done in the safest way? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, there are you know there are some ways that, that work. You know, we we we, we try and control as much as possible without, I think, uh, sacrificing too many parts of human living as we can. Uh, so shopping is the one thing that uh, obviously people need to get supplies. In Shaftesbury, what, what we try and do, and we have done, in fact, some of the plays that I've been cons- uh, consulted about, to try, for example, in the queues, to try and distance people when they're staying in the queue by at least a meter by putting maybe tapes on the floor or bollards to kind of separate people standing in the queue. We also have the problem of course in aisles, aisles and shops, uh, particularly smaller shops or more crowded shops, uh, people do come close to each other. Unfortunately, people have to go to shops. Uh, we now are now, of course, in the pre-Pesach season where the shops are particularly crowded. So as much as possible, as much as feasible, as much as can be done, we try and avoid the crowding and limit it uh, to as short a period of time as possible. Uh, and we also appealing also for, for kids that I know it's very, very difficult with the schools being closed, parents of young children, how to keep them occupied, but to try and appeal to parents not to take children on an outing when they go shopping. Because the problem with kids, and kids are a special problem for two reasons. The one reason is that kids, when they get infected, don't usually show symptoms or they often get it very mildly. So they're very active still. That's the one problem. And therefore they can circulate and spread the virus. The second problem, of course, is that kids, their standards of hygiene are not, are not completely satisfactory. So we have a double whammy with kids. And, uh, although, you know, it's very difficult to keep kids under isolation or quarantine, but we're appealing to people not to take kids to the shops as an outing and to try and keep them away from people who are crowded. Now, our problem, of course, is our elderly, our people over the age of 70, because that's a, that, are, that is our vulnerable population. And we really try and kind of separate the spreaders of the virus, which are the kids from the elderly who are the susceptibles. Wow. Okay. Scary times. So, I mean, if we can go out as minimally as possible, should we be wearing masks when we go out? When we go to the shops, or do you think just keeping uh, distance is is fine? Yeah. You know, masks are, 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 are an issue, I think, in itself. Masks, of course, are absolutely indicated, should be worn. Well, first, by health workers uh, who, who come into contact with, uh, with, uh, with patients who've got the infection. So healthcare workers and also people that are infected. Because people that are infected, the mask prevent those droplets from going out into the atmosphere. But other than those two categories, we actually don't recommend masks. Masks can actually be do more be more problematic than not wearing masks. The reason for that is that if masks aren't worn properly, if there are still gaps, for example, uh, then people have a, um, a, a false sense of security. That's the one problem. The other problem is that putting on masks and taking off masks is also one has to be trained how to do it, never to touch the front of the mask because that gets potentially contaminated. And if one touches the front of the mask, one can contaminate one's hands and in that way spread the infection. Um, 
And, and, and really, I think uh, Mosk, the, the WHO and all international authorities have recommended that people who are not infected and who are not health workers shouldn't wear masks. And the other problem, of course, people tend, you know, masks can be a bit uncomfortable, so people tend to adjust them and touch them and so on, and thereby contaminate their hands. Right. So, in fact, masks can be more problematic, can be more uh, detrimental rather than, than having them at all. Okay, thanks, Prof. We're going to take another short ad break, and then we'll come back, maybe talk about surfaces and disinfecting. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. We're talking to Professor Barry Schub about coronavirus and uh, distancing, social distancing. We're speaking about disinfecting. We're speaking about hand washing crops. Now there have been a lot of uh, misinformation, there's been a lot of misinformation about surfaces. Uh, yeah. When we go to shops, we're touching credit card machines, we're touching packets, we're touching meat, we're uh, touching so many different surfaces. How long does the virus stay on different surfaces for? Um, I suppose we more have to, uh, we have to clean surfaces and we have to clean our hands. What would be um, the best thing? Should we carry our hand sanitizer around with us? When should we be sanitizing surfaces? How often? And what should we be using for this? Yeah. No, thanks, Dean. I, I think I must, be, uh, even before I talk about surfaces, say that the main route of transmission is through um, coming into contact with somebody who's, who's expelling those droplets. So social distancing is the first and foremost uh, thing we need to guard against. Surfaces come second. The reason for that, why, why surfaces are a problem, is that these droplets they're usually uh, larger droplets. Large, and there, there are two ways in which respiratory viruses are spread. One is called droplets, the other is called aerosols. Aerosols are smaller particles of fluid. They remain in the air for a, a longer period of time. The droplets don't remain for that long in the air, and then they fall down on various surfaces. And the surface can be a tabletop, it can be a chair, it can be, of course, the floor, but that's not too much of a problem. And things that we, that, that we, um, that we, uh, that we can touch. As you say, cell phones, credit card machines, etc., etc. And of course, the question is, how long does the virus remain viable in those in those situations? Well, there have been there has been a study. It's very well quoted in the medical literature. It's a study done in the National Institute of Health in America, where they actually looked at this particular issue. And it does vary on what kind of surface it, it falls onto. On the one hand, it also varies if there's also respiratory Secretions which protect the virus, the protein protects the virus. If the uh, if the virus is embedded in any uh, in any material, organic material, but if uh, just on the surface, looking at the surface itself, uh, the best surface is a copper surface where the virus only remains viable for four hours. But you don't often come into contact with copper surfaces. Presumably, the copper itself may um, uh, inactivate the virus. On something like cardboard or paper. Uh, it remains viable for 24 hours. And the upper limit, something like plastic or stainless steel, which I guess is the most common surface, up to 72 hours. But if there is, a, as I mentioned before, any organic material, any respiratory secretions in which the virus is embedded, then, it, uh, of course, it is protected by that protein. And that can be maybe even longer than 72 hours. But we usually take 72 hours as the, as the, as the upper limit. And that is why if you come into contact with public surfaces, banisters of uh, escalators and stairways, light switches, credit card machines, uh, those kind of surfaces which 
people where the public uh, come into co- uh, or commonly come into contact with. Ideally, one should wash one's hands with soap and water. That is the ideal way of disinfecting one's hands. But obviously, soap and water are not always available. So sanitizers, hand sanitizers, are just a convenient second best. I should mention that if hands aren't clean, the sanitizers aren't going to work very well. And that's why soap and water is the first best way of decontaminating your hands. But if you have a clean hand, then hand sanitizers, as long as they contain a sufficient amount of material that's going to inactivate the virus, and it's usually alcohol, you need at least 60% alcohol in the sanitizer for it to inactivate the virus. I often get asked how frequently you should wash your hands. Well, I guess the frequency is depending on how frequently you touch a public surface, a public uh, touched surface. Um, and ideally, I guess as soon after you, you touch a, such a surface, you should either sanitize your hands or, or preferably wash your hands. The other thing, of course, the virus doesn't go through the hands. The hands are merely the vehicle which conveys the virus. The virus will go through the respiratory tract. Now, the respiratory tract also includes the eyes, the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. You should try and avoid touching those as much as possible. Um, and particularly if you do touch a public surface and haven't yet uh, washed your hands or, des- or sanitized your hands, you should try as much as possible not to touch, because your hands are dirty, not to touch your face. I've seen, the, I just read an article this morning about wearing gloves, how gloves can actually be more dangerous. They're not wearing okay. gloves because it gives you a, a false sense of security that your hands are clean, but everything else you are touching, you're disinfecting. So the people maybe at passport control are sitting behind the cashier. They're using gloves, and they think they're safe. I mean, if you're going to be doing that you need, with every person you need to see, you need to change gloves. We need to wash or sanitize uh, sanitize your gloves. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I've, I think we all of us have seen people with gloves touching a surface and touching their, touching their face. Now, there's no point in having the glove in the first place. As you say, it does give a false sense of security. If gloves are worn properly... Uh, and they don't touch a contaminated surface, and they don't touch a face, obviously then it's fine, but that's a seldom situation. As you say, I think gloves can be probably worse than having them in the first place. Yeah, so I think, I mean, better rather than advise people wearing gloves when they go out, just have a hand sanitizer with you and try sanitize it, as we've said, um, after touching uh, surfaces. And I wanted to... I wanted to ask you, what uh, we, we're going through a bit of a dilemma now at the moment uh, in our hospital and uh, especially in our ENT department. Um, there has been data coming out from China, Iran, Italy, and UK that uh, ENT doctors, uh, which is, you know, as you know, I'm an ENT specialist, uh, yeah. are often being the, the highest affected because of the base of the, the viral shedding um, in the nose and in the airway. So people are cancellating non-urgent surgeries, tonsillectomy, nasal surgeries, and only doing uh, dye emergencies. Um, should people still be going to the doctor at the stage for, for other things? How do you think we should maintain it better? Should pra- doctors' practices be open? Should they only be seeing emergencies? Or is it not time for that yet? Yeah, Dean, that's a, that's a difficult question to really answer globally. You know, if people need to see a doctor, clearly they need to see a doctor. I think that, you know, all cold things, all kind of regular checkups which can be delayed, uh, which are not urgent, should be delayed. 
And of course, the, the, the question that then is going to be asked, well, for how long? And unfortunately, we can't give, we can't give an answer to that. Yeah. As mentioned earlier in the program, we're heading to winter. So my, my projection to the future that it's, it's not going to stop before the end of the winter season, which of course is quite a few months from now. So I think it's, it's difficult to make an overall prescription. I think it's really going to depend on individual cases. If it's something which can be delayed for a long period of time, yeah, then ideally that should that, that should be delayed, and if it can't, well, obviously one has to kind of weigh up the risk as you know risk and the consequences. Um, the as you say, yes. you know, well, I think every, everything dealing with uh, um, the upper respiratory tract, and of course the ENT specialists do deal with the upper respiratory tract, is problematic. I think healthcare workers like yourself should try and get hold of the N95 masks. Um, the N95 mask, I should just, uh, I should say, is the ideal mask, but one has to be trained to put it on and take it off carefully. Now, it has to be fit tested to the, to the face. If one has a beard, it's a bit of a problem, of course, because, uh, that's going to allow air to come through, um, and not to kind of touch the front of it, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, healthcare, particularly if you, if you're actually working in the upper spot, in, in the uh, nasopharyngeal and the oropharyngeal space, where droplets are and can be generated. Even taking a, a throat swab, uh, people sometimes gag and they expel respiratory droplets, can pose a risk of transmitting the virus. So ideally you should have the N95 mask working in that area. It applies, of course, to, also, applies to dentists as well and so on, yeah. And uh, also, I guess, goggles or a visor. And what, what about how important is it to wear a, an apron or um, protective clothing. Well, protective clothing is, I guess, secondary of secondary importance. They're the kind of problems that those droppers can land on if you don't have protective clothing on clothing, which one then touches, and then that way, and then touch your face and so on, and that way you can auto, you know, uh, can get infected. Um, but the mask is, is obviously the most important. Protective clothing, other protective clothing, secondary important. Okay, perfect. So um, let's talk about now going into the winter. People are going to be getting sick um, with the flu and other respiratory uh, illnesses. Is there any way to differentiate between these or um, what, what should people do if they find themselves with a cough and fever? Um, I imagine if they haven't been in contact with any other people, they've been practicing social distancing or um, they haven't been around someone with a travel history, it might be easier to distinguish. Should you be swabbed? Um, in any case for uh, COVID-19 or should we be swabbed for all the other illnesses to differentiate and can they coexist together? Yeah, that's, that's certainly going to be a big problem as we head into the winter season. And this is why just as, as a digression, we are strongly advising people to get their influenza immunization to at least try and minimize uh, the um, circulation of influenza virus because that's certainly going to be a diagnostic problem. The symptoms of influenza overlap very, very much with um, with coronavirus infection. Um, but, of course, there are other respiratory diseases, particularly in the winter season. And, again, the symptoms will overlap with coronavirus. Coronavirus, the, the, the case definition would really involve two things. One of them are the symptoms. You need to have symptoms. There's no point if you don't have symptoms. And the most important symptom is the temperature. Temperature seems to be the most common symptom of coronavirus infection. And then a cough, a dry cough, um, and then also a sore throat, 
and the more severe case, uh, the more advanced cases shortness of breath. So those are the important clinical symptoms. And then in addition, what need to have some kind of uh, history that there's been contact, either travel contact, or of course that's going to get less and less and less, or else contact with somebody who has the disease or probably has got the, the, the disease or the infection. Now, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm giving out a sort of an ideal scenario. There are going to be many, many, many cases where somebody's got some of those symptoms and may or may not have a history of contact uh, and I think, you know, it's very, again, it's going to be very difficult to give a prescription. Um, you know, this is when you should go for a swab. This is when you shouldn't go for a swab. I think the individual case will really be need to be the uh, the province of the of a very good general practitioner who's going to make a, a, a call whether it's the common cold, uh, whether it's influenza, or whether it's something that needs to be tested for. Okay, so um, are there any besides the influenza vaccine? Are there any other vaccines that you would recommend that people get now before winter? No, influenza really. Uh, the influenza vaccine really is the only one, and I, and particularly people over the age of sixty-five must must be immunised against influenza. Okay, and what about the um, pneumococcal vaccine? I mean, that should should that be given to people over sixty-five? The um, yes, I mean we okay. Yeah. Yeah, the pneumococcal vaccine, of course, is, is not something which is going to overlap with the coronavirus, uh, but certainly people over 65 should get the pneumococcal vaccine and should be up to date with the pneumococcal vaccine on a regular basis, on a regular basis. Okay. And, um, children, we carry on with the normal vaccine, vaccine schedule. Should children be being immunized against influenza as well? I think ideally they should be. Uh, they're not obviously in the same category as the elderly or people with underlying medical conditions where it's obligatory. But I think it's, I think it's an ideal that children should also be immunized. You know, flu is a lousy infection. It can lay you down low for quite a while. And, uh, you, we got an effective, uh, an effective vaccine. So it's, it's, I think the idea is that everybody, that, that uh, the entire population should be vaccinated against influenza. It's just that is we it, do categorize which are medically obligatory and those where it's nice to do. Are there any children uh, too young? I mean, what age can you give the influenza vaccine from? Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I think it's normally given from the, uh, certainly from the age of one upwards, uh, not, not below that, unless there are special indications. Okay, fine. Um, Prof, uh, what do you, People uh, do now. We're going to speak from like a religious aspect about uh, Pes- Pesach Seder or yeah. uh, gather- gatherings at home. You know, people might want to uh, invite over family. They say, "Oh, our family's been under quarantine as well, so therefore we've got two families in quarantine. We should join together, and then we make a safe, bigger family with quarantine." What are you, what's your opinion on that? Well, my opinion is, Seder we're going to have a different Seder in, in the year of COVID than any other Seder because we really need to kind of make adjustments this year. Um, I've actually got a little video on the Board of Deputies website where I've talked about specifically about planning for the Seders, but I'll just summarize it. I think there are three, three general principles for this year's Seder. And I'm going to give general principles because obviously every family is individual and I and every I've, I've been getting numerous phone calls about um, should we invite this person, this grandparent, or this 
auntie and this and so on and so forth. And really, I think every family must make their own decision. Obviously, the sedorium are going to be smaller this year uh, because we want to kind of limit social distancing. And there are three general principles. The first one is social distancing. We need to, and obviously, every family needs to kind of make their own arrangements. We try to limit the numbers so we're not going to have a crowded soda. Smaller sodas than in previous years. That's number one. And try to kind of seat people as far as possible apart, ideally at least a meter apart from each other. Uh, and obviously no hugging, no kissing, no handshaking, no body contact. That's the social distancing. The second, we've got to look at our vulnerable population, which are the elderly and also any age group who've got underlying lung diseases or heart disease or immunosuppression. They really, we need to be very sensitive that they need to be protected uh, I'm not going to say don't invite them to a soda because everybody needs to kind of make, every family will need to make their own decision. All I'm saying is that that group is a vulnerable group. They need to be protected from any source of infection. And the third, the third important principle of children, kid, uh, young kids. And we know that kids, they get very excited. Uh, they may be infected. They may be trans sources of infection. And we really need to keep, if there are um, any of the vulnerable group, Kids must really not come into close contact with them. We need to, uh, dare I say it on the air, discipline our children. Because um, children are active, they are ebullient, they don't have good standards of hygiene. So if there are children present at the Seder, we need to explain to them very, very carefully uh, their behavior at the Seder. So I think these are three guiding principles for the Seders of COVID-19 of the year 2020. They're going to be different. They're going to be a more subdued Seder uh, than what we've had before. And every family must very carefully use those three principles to guide them in planning their Sedorim. Okay. Thank you for that, Prof. We're going to take a short ad break now at uh, 20 to 11. When we come back, uh, we'll speak about, um, I think, about other, other uh, gatherings and whether you think they're appropriate or not. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to our final quarter of Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We have the privilege of speaking to Professor Barry Shu, virologist, about uh, the coronavirus at this very difficult time. Now, Prof, um, and, uh, as we know in our Jewish community, we had uh, the chief rabbi, um, issuing, uh, cancelling all minyanim. We know that schools are on hold. We do know that some people have made private minyanim in the houses. Some shuls still continue to operate. People have messaged me saying, but it's fine as long as we have social distancing in these public spaces. What do you say to, to those uh, people from, you know, not, um, from a completely medical, um, background? No, no, like, uh, you know, a religious kind of, we need to, we need to, uh, pray. We need to, Join. We need to carry on with our normal lives. Purely medically, should people still be grabbing, uh, gathering together, even if they are protecting so, uh, uh, social distancing and they uh, two meters apart, they've got hand sanitizers less than ten in a room. Yeah, Dean. I think I'm going to be sticking my neck out, and I think my neck's probably going to get chopped a bit. But I think it's in the interest of public health. I think it's very important to get this message across. The decision that was taken by the chief rabbi was a very painful decision. It was a very, very difficult decision. 
It was taken over a lot of, after a lot of consultation, both with the medical experts like myself and, and Richard Friedland and, 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 and others as well, and also with the halakhic authorities, both here and abroad. So it, taking all that into account, uh, then the decision was taken. And I can assure people that are listening, it was taken after a great deal of consultation and it was a very, very painful decision, but it was taken in the interests of public health. And the reason for that is that when people gather together, and the shuls are the one place where people do gather together, uh, and no matter what one says in, in terms of trying to institute social distancing, hand sanitizing, hand washing, making architectural um, uh, modification to the shul, there will still be people congregating together. There have been private minyonim, and I think that is wrong. I think they are a public health menace. I think they are endangering our community. We have situations where people have come, where Bokhrim have come from Israel. We know that there have been imported cases. We know that people with with uh, with um, infection have been going to Simchas and so on. And they are endangering people's lives by having these, I'll call them pirate minyonim. By having these pirate minyonim, they are in fact endangering the community. Because no matter what social distancing t- um, procedures they say they are doing, you cannot avoid the fact that there are people gathering together and often in confined spaces, often singing lustily and loudly when they're davening, generating respiratory droplets within a confined space. That is the recipe for um, outbreaks of respiratory infections. We have got imported cases in our community, um, and it, it, it doesn't take much rocket science to kind of um, think that, that 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 these cases then can transmit sometimes unknowingly because we know that there is a, 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 a probably a significant proportion of the population who are infected and don't know they are infected. They can then be transmitting the infection, and I think that it is wrong to continue with these minyonim. We have taken great, uh, very widespread advice to have to 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 close our shores, to close the minyonim. And I think it is very wrong to kind of continue with these private minyonim. As I say, I think they are endangering the community, and I think they need to think very, very carefully what they are doing. Um, I agree with you there. I mean, I, I hope I spelled it out clearly enough. No, that was, yeah, I was hoping for that uh, opinion because I've been the exact same. I was saying, you know, is it really, is it really worth it? Um, is it really worth it? You know, it may not be endangering yourselves, but you definitely are, um, endangering others. And I don't care what health precautions you do take. You're still going to be coming and going through the same entrances and same doors. You're going to be using the table, same, uh, tables and, uh, chairs. And I really think that it's, um, that it's unacceptable at this stage. Um, you know, I, I think if I could just come in there, you know, they might not be endangering themselves, they're endangering others in the community, and particularly our vulnerable members of our community, our elderly, and our people who, go, who are uh, vulnerable for other reasons, got underlying medical conditions. And by, by, by circulating the virus, they're amplifying it, they're actually causing a greater epidemic and endangering our vulnerable population. Yeah, the scary thing is that people don't know whether they're symptomatic or not. Um, we've seen now in cases being sent to us as ENT, some people's only symptom of the virus is that they can't smell or they can't taste. 
some people might have, you know, they have, might have allergies and they might not know the difference between, you know, their usual allergic symptoms and, and the coronavirus and they carry on with their daily lives and, and they really risk uh, spreading it to other people. Is there, is there any way though to, to predict, uh, we know the elderly or people with immunocompromised or have respiratory illnesses are the ones the most at risk. Is there any way predicting the course, um, or, of disease that the person's, uh, gonna take or that the disease is gonna take on the person? Um, and, um, I, I think the scary thing is we don't know that. Um, but we worried about, um, you know, the worst people going to ask you ending up on, on ventilators and not being able to get off them. Yeah, no, thanks, Gian. I'm glad that you brought that up because, um, you know, in fact, the WHO Director General came out with a statement and said that the young aren't invincible. There have been many, many cases of young, healthy individuals getting severe disease, landing up in ICU and, and dying. We know that the initial whistleblower, the very first whistleblower in China, uh, was a young, healthy, young in his 30s uh, doctor with no underlying condition who died of the disease. So uh, the young tend to get the disease milder, but not exclusively so. Um, there, there have been many, many cases of young, healthy individuals getting very severe disease. So I think we do need to bring, bring that point out. It's not only the elderly who get the severe disease. So um, do we have, based on what's happened so far, that we have, we are luckily, thank God, a few weeks ahead of the, um, the other countries and we um, have learned from them, what do you think could be uh, next possible steps that government takes? And what do you think the outcome of, of uh, these would be? Yeah, look, I'd, I'd like to be able to be a prophet and say what the government, I, I don't know. I know that the, the state president is addressing the nation today. I'm not quite sure what time it's going to be. But clearly, undoubtedly, they're going to tighten up on the control measures. Whether you will go into a full lockdown, like some countries, apparently Rwanda and Africa has gone a full down lockdown, Greece has gone in full lockdown, many states in the United States have gone a full lockdown. We may well go in full lockdown. A full lockdown means that people are confined to their homes, um, and it can be policed by the military and by the police that people don't go out except uh, to get provisions. That's a full lockdown. Uh, whether it will be a partial lockdown, in other words, that all public places get lock, get, get closed down other than uh, essentials, um, we don't know. But uh, I, 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 I'm pretty sure, because the government is being well advised by um, scientific experts, um, I think that there will be quite significant tightening of the noose uh, in this president's next announcement. And I think it's, it's, it's going to become necessary. Uh, yeah, I mean, as we can see on over social media, people not really listening to a lot of the guidelines, still taking it, still taking this quite lightly. Um, what do we, what do we do about um, long term? You said this might last throughout of winter. Uh, throughout winter, I mean, I guess people stay in their homes for as long as long as necessary. But is there any end in sight, or what would the possible end uh, be? What are the scenarios that we can see? Um, from, I guess, uh, we don't want to spread too much doom and gloom. What is like the best case scenario and what is the worst case scenario? And what do you think the South African scenario will be? I know you're not a prophet, but if you can just, uh, tell us in your experience what you think. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I am not a prophet and B, I'm not a mathematical modeler because the, uh, the, method, the mathematical modelers look at the 
epidemic curve, and look how, how it's uh, developed uh, in countries like China, which have gone through, a, I guess, a complete curve. Uh, in Italy, where there's an explosive epidemic, in Europe, where there's a severe epidemic, and try to make kind of mathematical predictions of what's going to happen into the future. And there are two main studies done in this country, one by the Stellenbosch Group and one by the physics department at, at WITS. And it appears from those modeling studies that the epidemic will affect, uh, when I say infect, not affect, but infect, uh, about 60 to 70 percent of the population. You must remember that this is a new infection and a completely susceptible population. So it's different to influenza, where we all have partial immunity from previous exposure. So influenza only affects about 20 to 30% of the population and then dies out. This, because it's a, what you call a virgin soil epidemic, a virgin soil outbreak, will probably affect 60 to 70% of the population, most of whom will get mild and many of whom will get it without any symptoms, without being aware of it. And only a small proportion will get severe disease. Probably only of that, only about 10 to 15 percent will get severe disease. Um, so that that's the kind of mathematical prediction. But of course, human beings aren't aren't uh, the subject of mathematical numbers, and there can be quite a wide variation from what is mathematically predicted. But that's the mathematical prediction, and probably it's going to be. Not fairly close to that uh, with some degree of variation. Okay, we're going to take our final ad break and then we'll sum up after that break. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to our final uh, few minutes on Discam Medical Monday, 101.95 FM. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Professor Barry Shub, virologist. Uh, Prof, does uh, does it scare you? Are you worried um, about the situation? There's a lot of people sending in a picture saying, when doctors are worried, you should be worried. Stay home. And I don't know if it's uh, fear-mongering, but there is some truth to it. Um, well, are you worried about the current situation? Well, I, I guess, yes, I guess uh, worried because uh, concerned. We've got, uh, it's a, this is a severe public health problem. Uh, we, we must not trivialize it. You know, unfortunately, we have two groups of people. We have three groups of people. Um, we have the trivializers who say, look, this is just going to be another flu. Maybe it'll be a, bit, a little bit worse than the flu, uh, than a flu. It'll be a bad flu coming winter. Those are the trivializers. And then we have the panickers, those who are stocking up on toilet paper, et cetera, et cetera, for the coming catastrophe. And the, it's, it's, uh, the, the truth is the golden mean. We are going to have a severe public health problem. We're going to have uh, an important public health, but there's no reason to panic. There's no reason to kind of go into, uh, into to, to get into a state about it. I think we need to take the necessary precautions, which have been worked out by international experts throughout the world, coordinated by the World Health Organization, but also the Center for Disease Control in America, Public Health England, and everybody is at one with what these recommendations are. They are scientifically worked out. So as long as people do obey these precautions and they do carry them out uh, meticulously, uh, I don't think one should get into a panic about it. It is a controllable situation. We're trying to ameliorate it as much as possible, and we'll get through it. We'll get through it at the end of the day. Okay. I guess that's a a nice uh, take-home message that, uh, you know, I think think a lot of people are – 
anxious. And I was speaking to my wife saying, why are people so anxious? You know, we look back at other epidemics or times in history and one, we're happy that we weren't there and that's why they seem okay. And now we're here and we're having to face this. And two, you know, um, there was an end in sight and we know what, what happens. And I guess this scary part of the unknown is what makes um, the journey over the next few months, months, uh, so scary, the financial aspect, the health aspect, the social aspect, and uh, the, the mental health or psychological aspect. Um, is there anything you feel that, uh, any other message that you'd like to give uh, through to the people before we uh, end off? Yeah, dear, I think, Mary, I think we probably have covered everything. I, I think, again, it's just an appeal to people who who don't, who try and flout the system to please, please, these are, these are not trivial um, recommendations and guidelines and edicts which have come out from the government. These are well thought out, well planned. Everybody needs to do their part. We need to kind of pull together. And those, and they are, there's, there's nobody who's invincible. Everybody uh, is at risk. Uh, and we really want to kind of pull together as a community so everybody can help each other. Um, and I guess that, that would be my final message. Okay. Okay. And, uh, let's just talk about, uh, resources. Where is the best place? I mean, there's, so, there's fake news, there's rubbish news, there's bad stats, there's old news. Where's the best place to stay ahead with the information and messages? I know that you've, uh, going to be giving updates on the Jewish Board of Deputies website. Yeah, the, uh, the Jewish Board of Deputy website does have a number of resources on it. One of them is, is the one that, that you mentioned that I do give a daily update to try and give a daily update. There are also other resources. There's also a Q&A uh, on the website where people who have got uh, questions or Shilers can, uh, can send their questions. I'll try and answer them to the best of my ability. If I can't, then we'll refer them onwards. Uh, and they get posted back onto the website. So there is that, that resource for the Jewish community. I think it's a very important resource. We try our best to try and answer as quickly as possible. Um, and there are also other um, information sources on the, on the uh, board's website. There are uh, website, nicd.ac.za, and the Department of Health for general information. All right. Thank you very much for your time, uh, Professor Shub. And um, wish you a happy kosher Pesach. I know you're going to be staying safe at home. Please, God, will speak at uh, the end of this and uh, we'll discuss about uh, how we maintained a, um, a good social strategy of distancing and how South Africa was an example of everyone else to get through this. Thank you again for your time. Thank you, listeners, for listening on Discam 101.9 High FM. Uh, health and healthy and safe and happy week. And please just remember, stay home, please stay home.